session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Uh, no studio number for calls today because I'm on Instagram Live, but you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on uh, iTunes and Spotify. Um, Let's get to the books of the week. Having some issues here with the camera for the Instagram live feed. Let's see if we can figure that out. Anyway, um, so the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is Change, How to Make Big Things Happen by Damon Santola. Change, How to Make Big Things Happen. And so uh, this was a book I, I came across that I thought would be interesting when we look at social changes or how to bring about social change, we talk a lot about it, or I talk about a lot of issues on this show, but apparently this book gets into um, really how those things happen in, in a bigger sense. So look forward to reading that book and sharing it with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll be talking about tonight is The Hidden Spring by Mark Solms. The Hidden Spring a journey to the source of consciousness and this book was so fascinating I, I i can't state that highly enough how interesting and intriguing this book was as far as for me to read it but is and i highly recommend you read it yourself um it really is one of those books that will change the way you think and even it's about our brains and our minds and how how we could look at consciousness in a different way and there was so much that I learned from the book and also so much that it made me think about in question that uh, I'm still you know definitely the wheels are turning and I think will continue to turn based on some of the paradigm shifts that I experienced in reading this book so I, I really hope you will read the book itself I will definitely give you my thoughts on it today but that is The Hidden Spring by Mark Solms a journey to the source of consciousness. And uh, Mark Solms is a neuroscientist, um, and but he also, interestingly, not only is a neuroscientist, but he studied to be a psychoanalyst, studied and trained to be a psychoanalyst as well, which is a very rare combination, but a very important one. And he does share a bit uh, about that in the book, uh, a fair amount, about what really led to his education in, in different ways or some factors involved in that. He shares the very personal yet heartbreaking story of his own family experience that his brother, when he was, I think, around two or three, and his brother was six years old or so, I think if I'm getting the ages right, but sadly, they were playing and his brother, uh, he was already, I think, in the water, uh, Mark Solms himself, his brother fell off of a three-story building, I believe it was, hit his head, um, and unfortunately had had a brain injury, and so he had to go through lots of treatment. He survived. Thankfully, he did not die. Many people could from the type of brain injury he experienced. But what Mark describes, Mark Solms describes, Dr. Solms, is that when his brother came back, he was the same body, he was the same person, well, in a way, the same person, but it was not the same Lee, which is his brother's name. Um, he was a different 
it, he wasn't the same person he used to be before. They would play, for example, and the way he describes that he, they would play, he, for example, could not do the abstract play. So they would play this games, uh, this game where they would dig holes, but it was like they were digging for diamonds, which was actually the type of work his father was involved with. But he said now when they would play that same game for his brother, his older brother, it was just digging holes. There was no abstraction or meaning to it. And so this had a big effect on a young Mark Solm, seeing that something happened, this brain injury somehow changed what his brother was like in some way that that can be hard to explain and this really in a way gets to what we're talking about is this experience that people have and when people talk about consciousness sometimes we talk about it's this sense of anything is conscious if there's something it is like to be that thing or, or person or being it's some like for example there's something it is like to be a frog or a fox or a human being. In this case, uh, I think it's interesting because there was something it was like to be in relation to his brother, and now that changed, or he experienced his brother in a different way. So he thinks that partially, I think, was a driving force in him wanting to study neuroscience. But what he found in the field of neuroscience that he did not like, or he was surprised about, was that in the study of the brain, there was really this lack of interest or lack of study at all, or you weren't even supposed to think about things like, what is it like to experience these things? So in a way, feelings or a big part of what it's like to be human, what it is like to be, they were taken out of the equation or weren't even part of what was being studied. And he was troubled by this, that there was in a sense, this way of removing what he thought was so important, which is how do we explain or try to understand the experiences that we have rather than just this is how visual information is processed through the optic nerve and all these things and the occipital lobe and whatnot, which is really important and really fascinating. But questions about actual human experience were not even allowed to be asked. And he was told essentially that these are bad questions for your career to be thinking about. You should be focusing on these other things. Um, so he then went to study psychoanalysis and become trained as a psychoanalyst, which, as he explains, these two fields in some ways were almost like, I don't want to say enemies, but almost against each other. Uh, the psychoanalysts very much focused on experience and feelings, and, and oftentimes therapists, we can not be as interested in the biological. We think of everything in some kind of psychological way, which of course, if we really think about it a little bit more, we must recognize that if something is even psychological, it's coming from some type of physical or biological causes, as we can't just separate that. It's not happening in thin air, although that's sometimes partially the belief for some people. And neuroscientists very often, especially at that time, were very much focused on just looking at the brain in this practical way looking at just the functions of different things, but experience was almost completely taken out of it. I think he quotes Oliver Sacks saying something like, there's no psyche in, in the way that they were looking at the brain, which is quite puzzling because we might think that's in some ways one of the more fascinating or interesting aspects or what might be the most interesting aspect of what is going on. So I think that also helps explain why Dr. Mark Solms is able to make such a interesting, fascinating contribution to uh, our understanding of human beings, human experience, is that he 
studied both of these things because he was interested in, in a way, bringing those two things together. The, the function of the brain through neuroscience traditionally as it was being practiced, but also the experience of being human, that there is, um, that is something very fascinating, interesting, and something we all, of course, are curious about on a daily basis through our experiences, um, but also why aren't we studying this more or recognizing the significance of studying this? So um, that gives you some understanding of where Dr. Mark Solms is coming from or his expertise, experience, and his experience and his research is quite remarkable as well. Uh, but that gives you some idea of what this book is about or what it looks at. So he does talk a bit about how people have thought about consciousness or even when we think of consciousness. One of the main things that comes up or historically has come up is people thought the seat of consciousness, and that's something that people will sometimes talk about, where is consciousness, where does it come about from the brain? Maybe I should make a little uh, side point here. Some people will say, and there's some arguments, that consciousness in some ways outside of, or happens some, some way outside of the brain, so that we can't even find it because it's in some way in some other I don't want to call it universe, but some metaphysical type of form. Um, even sometimes when people say something like a soul, they might be talking about something like this in, in a religious sense. But for some people, this uh, experience that we have of consciousness, what it's like to be a human being, what our experience is like, they we think that it's coming, or some people will say it's coming from something that we can't ever see because it's not there. It doesn't exist anywhere. It exists somewhere else. And I think if we look throughout human history, what we see is that when we can't understand something, we tend to think it's something metaphysical, God or gods or spirits are controlling it. So before we understood um astrophysics or physics in general, we might have thought that there are gods that are, or God is moving the planets around or the stars around or the sun um, is somehow being moved by God. Or I think even there was a time where they thought all the celestial beings were in some kind of glass cases or something, but we thought that there's no way that we can't understand how the planets and stars are moving or what is even out there. So some uh, you know, something metaphysical, like a god or something else, is causing this to happen. But then we start to understand it and we say, okay, there's no need for it to be some metaphysical type of force. We understand the forces now uh, of gravity and how things work that makes the experiences that we have, or I should say, um, the, what we observe, make sense now. And I think consciousness and Dr. Mark Solms does a great job of it in this book, can be explained to a degree if we understand it better. It doesn't have to exist outside of the physical realm. Uh, and I think he does a great job of, of expressing that and explaining that in this book. Uh, but what I was getting to is there is or has been this um, understanding that the cortex must be the most important part of the brain. It's the biggest part of the brain, and it's something that differentiates, or we like to think makes us different than other animals, because our cortex is bigger even by proportion than other animals. Although I looked it up today, and 
the difference is not that significant between the human cortex in proportion to brain, our brain size, and some other animals. It's not necessarily so different. But nonetheless, um, because I think partially this mindset we can have of human exceptionalism, that we are not like other animals, we are way above them and outside of, again, it's another way of this not seeing it as part of the natural order. We are somehow outside of the animal kingdom. You know, there's the animals and then there's us. And so, well, if this is a part of the brain that we see might be different in us, this must be the part that makes us human and has um, this ex part of consciousness must be there. This must be the seat of consciousness. And I think, unfortunately, this human exceptionalism, it, it gets in the way very often of us really understanding things. And we've seen this throughout human history as well. For example, I was talking about planets and things of that nature. Um, the heliocentric um, discoveries or theories of Copernicus, where he was saying the sun is the center of our solar system, not the earth, which we know this um, led to him experiencing hardships in his time, was taking away that exceptionalism that we are the center of the universe. Us humans, again, we have to show how we're exceptional. We are the center of the universe. So how dare you challenge that notion and say, no, the sun is actually the center and we revolve around it. And so people did not want to accept that and thought of it as blasphemous and all a bunch of other bad things. And so similarly, when people try to say we are like animals, Darwin experienced this as well, saying that, well, we've evolved as well and we've evolved from um, other animals and primates. And that's how humans came about. Many people still don't like to accept that, that they say, no, there's a human exceptionalism, that God created us in some way, or even if there is some evolution, it's different for human beings. So we see that there's this uh, constant desire to make sure we show ourselves as better than we are exceptional. We also see this actually happening amongst human beings, that uh, this is part of racism, that somehow my race makes me superior to other people. Or within cultures or races, in the Iranian culture, for example, being from this city or being a descendant of this person makes me exceptional, makes me better. I think that's an interesting, maybe not human need, but this desire to be special and exceptional. It could be that if we lack that, we don't like that feeling, which can make sense and even if we're not exceptional, we might be afraid of the resources we get. There might be some survival benefit to it to see ourselves as somehow better than others. But unfortunately, it's not steeped in reality, and it leads to much bigger problems overall, especially on a societal level. But so there was this fallacy. There's even a whole chapter in this book, The Hidden Spring by Mark Solms, that uh, it's called The Cortical Fallacy, that the the cortex is the most important part of the brain, that this surely is where consciousness comes from. But as he explains and he shows in a variety of different ways, we can see that actually, even without a cortex, we can see that um, there's still consciousness. Consciousness still seems to exist. He, he shares the examples of these children who are born without a, a, a cortex, hydroencephal hydroencephaly, hydronencephaly, something like that. I apologize for, I should have written that down. Um, but these children who are essentially born without a cortex, when you see them interact with the world, you can 
see clearly they are conscious. There's this sweet picture of a young girl. I believe she's about three years old. And they put her baby brother into her um, lap and she smiles. Clearly she's responding with some kind of feeling, some kind of affect, although she has no cortex. So uh, through that and other examples, Dr. Solms shows, and he says this is not really something that's even controversial, but that the cortex, the, the outer part of the brain, um, is not necessarily is not necessary for consciousness and even without it we can have consciousness and actually it's parts of the brain stem that is where consciousness really is is uh, springing forth and that's actually the title the hidden spring a journey to the source of consciousness that actually it's springing forth from the brain stem uh, and i'll continue on this after the break but again a very fascinating book the hidden spring by mark solms i'll continue discussion after the break we'll be right back welcome back Continu continuing the discussion on the book the hidden spring by mark solms and so I was saying this over the break to the, the viewers here on Instagram Live, but again, just have to reiterate how uh, incredible I think this book is and how much I hope everyone will read it for themselves. And also check out Mark Solms. I've seen, uh, I saw a one-hour uh, kind of a lecture he was giving primarily on this book and some other things. Really incredible, and I've learned a lot, and, and I'm looking forward to learning more from him um, with the work that he puts out. Um, I also want to thank Ali Reza. I forgot to mention that he was the one that mentioned this book to me. I did not know about it until he brought it to my awareness, pun intended. Um, and then uh, I was very happy that I got to read it. So thank you again, Ali Reza. I appreciate that. But as I was mentioning before the break, there tended to be this assumption that the cortex must be the most important part of the brain. And as such, consciousness, the seat of consciousness must be there. But as he demonstrated, and he shows in various different ways, the cortex does not seem to be necessary for consciousness. And actually, the brainstem, and this was interesting for me, because usually the brainstem was at least the way I, I'd read about it in my own reading over the years and in, in school was kind of this primitive part. It's just kind of just doing basic functions, but in this very automatic way, um, which is a big part of it, even still, when you read what Dr. Solms has to say about it, but it was seen as just very primitive, so not advanced in the way that when we think of consciousness, we think of something so advanced. So I'd heard and read many times different brain regions he talked about in the book about the brainstem and that region of the brain, but they never were given that much significance when I was reading about um, you know, neuroscience and the, the different functions of parts of the brain. The primary focus tends to be on the cortex, again, the outer part of the brain, which does a lot of the processing that we think about, like visual processing, um, auditory processing, things like that. And so there's the um, the reticular activating system as part of the brainstem. These part these brain regions might not be so significant, but just to hear them, and I, and I can't talk too much about them uh, because my knowledge of them is limited. But um, there's a reticular activating system, which is an important part of the the the, the what brings about consciousness and, and deals with feelings um, and emotions, or or which I'll talk about. Uh, the periac periaqueductal gray PAG is another part, and the superior colliculi. I'm probably saying that wrong, um, but those three parts uh, are very important when it comes to really that might be more as he puts it, that is where consciousness is coming from. Because even a small lesion, a small 
if you want to call it like a cut, but that's in the brain, I think it's something like just two millimeters in diameter, two millimeters in length is enough to just, you know, as he puts it, I heard him say that the lights go out, consciousness is gone. So we see that the brain stem um, is far from just this primitive part of us that's not important, really. It's very important. Really, it's this, this is the source of consciousness of conscious experience which is quite fascinating so just that itself was very interesting for me to learn that um, that really it's not the cortex that makes us conscious and actually a lot of what goes on in the cortex is unconscious that we're not we're not actually aware of it um, but the brain stem is much more prominent and much more important now getting to this um, part about what do we experience or why do we experience? And these are very complex issues. And the book, again, I'll highly recommend it. There was a middle part of the book or kind of closer to the maybe last third or so, but um, where it was very complex and it was not easy even to read it for me to digest. And I was taking my time and, and still I'm sure I don't understand a lot of it, but it was still interesting in understanding the dynamics and the explanations of how our brain works or how our mind works in the sense of how we experience things and how it might have come about, which I, I would want you to read and, and to understand it better than I'll be able to explain right now, or definitely check out Dr. Solms and his talks on the topic. Um, but looking at this part of why we even have feelings or what does it mean? And and actually that that is the the source of consciousness also, or what's most important, are feelings. That's really, um, we could say, why f consciousness even came about is to have feelings, to be able to have those experiences. And I'll explain how he explains that, or at least my understanding of it. So a fundamental issue when we look at this is the concept of homeostasis. So homeostasis is that living beings like ourselves, we can't survive just under any conditions or any experiences. We have certain bounds that we need to maintain in order to survive. So for example, temperature. Uh, and it's kind of funny to talk about temperature, as I've mentioned, our studio at, we're having some issues with air conditioning in the evening. So I'm feeling very warm right now. Um, but as a human, we need to maintain something like between, uh, he's mentioned it in Celsius, 36.5 and 37.5 degrees Celsius. We need to stay within that range. We can't just let ourselves heat up or cool down with whatever the environment is. And so a lot of this happens automatically. Our body does a lot of the regulation of these things, of our breathing, uh, various, so many of different functions that we have. Our, our, our brain essentially is taking care of it automatically maintaining that homeostasis however uh, that's always not going to be the case and if we want to be able to survive in a range of environments and experiences and contexts we at times need to be able to take actions so have that awareness um, to take action the awareness comes first and then taking action to resolve this issue of moving away from homeostasis and so essentially what we experience is that when we go away from homeostasis, we feel bad. It has a negative valence, meaning it doesn't feel good. Right now, I'm feeling warm 
And so it doesn't feel very good. Um, and this is interesting because it also gets into other aspects of how we deal with these different one, uh, different uh, feelings that come up. Although I feel very warm and my desire is actually to leave this room to resolve that homeostatic, homeostatic imbalance, uh, I'm choosing to stay here. I'm overriding that to a degree because I need to continue the show. And, and so what the feeling is telling me is this doesn't feel good. And it's going away from that. So we need to go back. We need to do work, put in effort to resolve that homeostasis to allow us, allow me in this sense, to survive and to do well. And so that's why the feeling is there. So again, the, the real core reason for the feeling is to try to maintain homeostasis. And the feelings do a great job of this. And actually, let me, let me explain also the other aspect of feeling. So that's one part that's good, right? If I'm moving away from homeostasis, how I can survive, something um, telling me, alerting me essentially, that this is not good, do something about it, that's very helpful and very important for survival. The other aspect that the feelings need to have, when I say feelings is my what I feel, uh, essentially we can say in my body, but it's happening in the brain, um, is it needs to have a qualitative factor to it. So for example, it can't just be enough to say you don't feel good, do something about it. I need to be able to differentiate between I am hot, I need to cool down versus I am thirsty, I need to have a drink of water versus I'm hungry, I need to eat something or whatever the other needs are. So there has to be a qualitative feeling too, or qualitative way of differentiating between the feelings to know what is going on and then to be able to act on that. Not only that, to really function, we need to be able to create hierarchies because you can have multiple needs at the same time, which might be of different degrees, different importance, um, and then acting on them depends on the context as well. So for example, if I was thirsty, but I also couldn't breathe, I wouldn't think, well, let me see if I can find some water. I would be trying to find some breath. Let's say if I'm in a uh, room that's on fire or you're in a building that's on fire, actually probably that would happen. You get hot, you get thirsty, but the breath is the most important thing. And so rather than looking for water, I would be trying to find a way out of the, you know, the, the room, the, the places that were filled up with um, the smoke to find some air. And so I would be looking for that first. So uh, he also describes how there's a, essentially a decision-making that goes on in this brainstem region between three different parts of the brain that has to prioritize actions as well or prioritize the, the needs that are coming uh, experienced as feelings. Now, what's also great about feelings, how they function, is the feelings themselves can also guide the action, but also give you feedback as to how well you're doing when it comes to the behaviors you're doing to take care of the needs. So, for example, you're thirsty, you start drinking water. And if you drink water, that feeling of thirst becomes less. It's telling you you're doing a good thing and you drink enough till that feeling goes away. And now you feel okay and you feel good. There's a sense of relief and that that's enjoyable. Um, but let's say I was hot like I am right now. And if I didn't know, now usually we just guide our action. It knows what to do intuitively, so to speak. But um, if I started to put more clothes on, I put on a hat and put on a sweater, I would get more hot. That feeling that isn't good, that bad feeling, would become stronger. 
would become worse. And so that would be telling me I'm going in the wrong way. And so I would have to do other behaviors. Uh, again, a lot of times intuitively we know what to do. Um, but even if we don't, we get feedback on how the feeling is being resolved or not, that negative feeling that comes from going away from that homeostasis. And so it's telling us when we're doing the right thing. And so when we even think of what it's like to experience these things, we see that it's more of a feeling state rather than a thinking state, because I said, you know, 36.5 degrees to 37.5 degrees Celsius is the body temperature we human beings need to maintain. And it's not just because I don't know Celsius very well, but even still, that knowledge of the, the declarative knowledge of that temperature range is not what guides me. It's the feeling. I don't have a thermometer on me exactly. Well, I guess we kind of do, but not a one that's telling me the numbers that tells me what to do. I go based on the feeling. So uh, I go, I get cooler and I'm saying, okay, I feel good. And now I feel good again. I can't tell you my temperature. I probably can guess it's within a range that's healthy and with the knowledge I have to tell you, but we can see that it's a feeling rather than some kind of information knowledge that's guiding what we're doing. And so um, the book, you know, again, there's so much more, as you can imagine, such a complex topic um, that he, he gets into so many important and interesting things. I was just fascinated and and really um, just my mind was blown again, pun intended, because we're talking about the brain and the mind and all that. But it, it was really a very fascinating read, and I hope you will read it. And, and it's interesting because, you know, we often think of humans. And again, this is another part of this maybe exceptionalism that it's about thinking and what we think so well and that makes us human but really what we see that what makes us alive or what really helps keeps us alive or this core of our consciousness is actually our feelings what we feel and as he puts it really um, there's no such thing as an unfelt feeling because if it's being for it to be a feeling it must be felt and you know he I heard him talking somewhere about how there isn't exact agreement about some of these words, feelings, emotions, affect, but uh, it's important for us to describe what we're talking about to make sure we're not talking about different things when we use those words. Um, but, you know, feeling is really the core of our experience and everything essentially comes down to that feeling state, how we feel. And maybe in the next uh, segment, I'll elaborate on this a little bit more because uh, I think it's interesting the ways we tend to think about um, feelings as being kind of inferior and thoughts are more important or you know he, he or she was being emotional it's important to just be rational when really everything we're doing is to affect our feeling states at the end of the day that's the most important thing about our experience and he also talks about how if we see or understand our consciousness in this way, we would have to accept that all animals are conscious as well, that they're having these feelings similar to us. I think there's a complexity that we might have in the ways we can, let's say, experience certain things, but other animals, all animals, all the, the beings that we interact with, they are also conscious as well, and they have feelings, which also can impact how we think about how we treat them from things like factory farming, to even uh, experimenting on animals and thinking, well, they don't feel something, they don't experience something, when very clearly, if we understand consciousness the way he explains it very well in this book, it would be virtually impossible to accept that type of notion that these beings are not conscious. 
just because we can't understand them. Um, actually, when you look at a baby, a baby is not really able to express in any kind of language what it's feeling, but we care a lot about how a baby is feeling, even more than probably anyone else, and I think rightfully so. Um, so just because some being can't communicate verbally what it is feeling or what it's experiencing, I don't think we should discount what they go through. And so I think that was also an interesting dynamic that came up at a few times in the book about how um, we should think of other beings as conscious and that should have an impact on how we we treat them. And again, coming back to this point that feelings, emotions, um, again, depends on how you want to use those words, but our feelings are really what life is all about, is this series of feelings that we have. And in essence, I think that should make us think about how are we making others feel, and I don't mean by just saying nice things to them, which can be important, but in taking care of one another, that really that's what life should be all about, is if we can do things to make people feel better, maybe that's part of the meaning of life or what gives life meaning, if that's what consciousness is all about. So again, a very, very fascinating book. I hope you will check it out. That was The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness by Mark Soames. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So continuing uh, on this theme, The Hidden Spring by Mark Soames. Again, can't highly recommend uh, that book enough. It's so, so interesting and fascinating. I hope you'll read it. But I did want to continue on some of the themes. You know, this concept that feelings are at the center of consciousness, what really gives rise to consciousness in the brainstem. Again, that's something that was eye-opening for me, the significance of the brainstem. Um, But I wanted to talk a bit about feelings in a few ways. One is the ways it's interesting how people minimize feelings. Um, Even, you know, I think whether it's a book or just you see it a lot, even people post, I can't say the word that starts with F, the bad word, but it says like F your feelings or like feelings don't matter. And so I will say this, that we can, we have to be careful with our feelings too. My, definitely my um, argument here is not to say whatever you feel, just do it instantly. That doesn't make sense. And that won't even make you feel good in the long term. So it's not that our feelings should be everything and the only thing. And so if you're angry, you can do whatever you want. And if you're sad, you can do whatever you want. And if you feel this, absolutely not. But I do think there's a tendency to minimize the importance of feelings or to see feelings as lower or more base and, you know, logic as as more important and that feelings shouldn't matter. And as I mentioned at the end of last segment, it's really that feelings are essentially all that matters is the feelings that we're having. It doesn't mean, again, that we just impulsively act on any feeling, but that's what we're striving towards. And so for me, it's even funny. Sometimes people say, I don't care about, um, uh, you know, feelings. I'm only logical and rational. I think it's usually it's pretty funny because it doesn't make sense at all. But people sometimes will say things like, no, no, I don't care about these things. It's about making money, let's say. But really, if you look at it, why do people want to make money? Well, one, there's maybe a sense of security. It gives them a feeling. And then also because they think it'll make them feel good to make a lot of money. It it always is going to come back to feelings. So it's strange to me when people think that they do things and has nothing to do with feelings. It always does. And we're always feeling something. We always have feelings. That's another 
misconception. People might say, oh, I, I don't have feelings or I'm not that emotional. We're always feeling that's how you stay alive, as this book helps explain, is the feelings you're having help guide you in what you're doing, whether you're aware of them. Uh, well, I guess if they're feelings, you have to feel them. Um, but whether you're giving them the significance that they have or not. Uh, so essentially all we're doing is, is working off of feelings. So if you tell yourself that I don't care about feelings, usually that's because you somehow want to another form of exceptionalism, probably this human exception and sexual exceptionalism to think we're better than others. Oh, people are, oh, so many people are emotional. I'm just rational and logical because I'm better than them. Uh, and that's, again, it's funny because it feels good to think of themselves that way. It's kind of ironic, but that's why they're doing that as it feels good. Uh, it kind of reminds me of people say, I don't care what anyone thinks, but they say it with so much anger that clearly they care or they even care to be seen as someone who doesn't care about what people think, which means they're caring what you think about them then. It's actually really funny. You'll hear that all. It's like, you know what? I don't care what anyone thinks. I don't care what anyone thinks about me, whatever I do. And they're saying it in such a way, and they're maybe even putting it on social media. Now you might say, well, they're, they're, they're trying to educate, but very often you can tell it's they like the attention of being seen as someone who doesn't care what people think, which again, ironically means they're caring that people think that about them. Um, so really, we have to be aware that feelings are almost always driving what we're doing, or really are driving what we're doing all the time. We want to be more aware of in what ways. I also see this with couples that they, for example, or people do this where it's like, um, you know, they're having an argument or something going on and say, you know, my husband or my wife, they're not being rational. This is not rational. They're doing this. And shouldn't it just be in this way? And shouldn't we always do that way? Well, yeah, yes, there's, there might be better ways of doing certain things. But usually when people say this is the logical way to do something, what they're really saying is this is what I like more. or This is what I prefer. So it's not rational to talk before blah, blah, blah. It's not rational to do this. Really what they mean is this doesn't feel good to me, which that's enough. Unfortunately, what people sometimes feel is that our feelings are not enough or they don't matter. So again, the way we make feelings small is that, well, you're upset. That doesn't mean anything. It has to be the right thing to do. And even people sometimes come uh, to therapy and I'll work with couples and they'll say, isn't what he's doing or what she's doing wrong? Or aren't they crazy or sick or tell them so they stop? When really that's usually not the case, what it is is that you don't like it. And that's very important and very important for your partner to know. And that should have an impact on your partner. Because again, going back to this basic um, importance of feelings, we hopefully are making our partner feel good and we should care about how we're making them feel. That's something that's very important for us to, to focus on. So we we need to be aware that feelings are really at the core of everything that is going on. Really, it's about how we're feeling. Again, that doesn't mean we just act on pure feeling that we don't have to think about anything or be involved in the process. Absolutely, we do. Uh, but I think it's important to remember that we're all feeling beings. We're all beings that feel and it's guiding us all the time. And it's what's important to all of us. And we're trying to fool ourselves at times because we see it maybe as weak or lower to tell ourselves I'm only rational or logical, or I only make decisions based on logical things when that's not the case. Emotions are driving the show much more than people tend to think, even when it comes to moral decisions. And when I was reading this book, uh, you know, Jonathan Haidt had did uh, research years ago uh, showing how moral decisions or moral um, 
preferences we have tend to be emotional things that we then make up reasons for after the fact. So you say, uh, you know, what do you think about abortion? And people say this, they have a feeling, and then they'll give you all these reasons, and they'll think it's the reasons that made them have this belief or this judgment, but actually it was their feelings that made the decision, and the reasons just came afterwards. And you see this, and Jonathan Haidt did this in his research, that when you take away people's reasons, and he did this, they get to a place of what he called moral dumbfounding, which is where they can't explain why anymore, but they still say, no, no, just it's, it's just wrong, or it just has to be this way, and they don't know why. And you might be hearing me think, oh, yeah, people do that, people do that. Well, also, you do that, and I do that. I myself... I'm definitely someone who does that as well because we all do. It's part of a human tendency. We could try to think about it and become more aware of it, but we have to first remove this fallacy to ourselves and no, no, I just think about things logically. Feelings don't play any part in that. No, you're part of being a being uh, is that we're, feelings are a big part of who we are. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about just in the last few minutes, the notion of homeostasis, which was such an important point or I think very uh, important in my understanding of how feelings work or why they even evolved. Why should we feel? Again, to recognize we're going away from that homeostasis and then taking action and then also prioritizing action and knowing uh, what we're feeling as far as what the need is. And we see homeostasis play uh, this from an emotional side when I'm talking about feelings play a part in a lot of different aspects of life. And a few of them I'll share whatever I can say off the top of my head. The first one and one we frequently experience first individually, um, you know, when you feel bad, you want to go away from it. When you um, are angry, you want to go away from that feeling, come back from a homeostasis. And that's telling us something, right? That feeling, unfortunately, this can oftentimes oftentimes because we want to go away from it, let's say so fast, we find it so intolerable, we'll do unhealthy things like let's say taking drugs or other types of behaviors to get away from that feeling. So we can also see this drive towards getting back to okay, um, pushing us in some ways. And this is why, as I was saying, it's not just, oh, you feel something, do whatever you want about it. You might recognize I'm really sad, but I know that feelings don't last forever. So I'm going to, you know, I'll ride this out. Maybe I'll listen to music. Maybe I'll talk to someone. But I don't need to take some drastic action to get away from this feeling. It's okay. Um, so that's one way. But also in how we interact with others. You even uh, might recognize this. Someone comes to you crying. And if you really, I think, think about it, our tendency is I have to get them to an okay place. Now, obviously, these are complex things. Their crying makes you sad. So is it really for them? Or is it really to make your feelings back to a homeostasis? Probably that's what it is. You're trying to get yourself back to homeostasis and seeing them cry, um, you know, sets your homeostasis out of whack and you're trying to get back there. And so that's why someone cries. What's the most common response to someone crying is stop crying or you don't need to cry. And this is actually why as a therapist, it does take some uh, effort to develop this, if you want to call it skill, but this kind of, this mindset that if your client is crying, don't just try to get them to stop crying, allow for them to express the feeling. And so I remember in my early days of training and seeing clients for the first time, it, it was so hard that when a client was crying, not to, to try to cheer them up or to just tell them it's okay or do something extra to make them feel good. It, it's a way of trying to get back to that homeostatic balance that things are okay when things are going away. So we get pulled away from that homeostasis, that good point. We're trying to bring 
bring them back. And again, probably it's because we're feeling that ourselves. Another, um, uh, I think, good explanation or demonstration of this is something that's sometimes called collapse of compassion. So if we tell you, any, I think anyone, I tell you there's a five-year-old boy outside of your door. He's cold. He's hungry. Uh, he's right outside your door. I think almost everyone, I hope you'd stop listening to me and, and go open your door, let the, the boy in, give him food, make him warm, take care of him immediately. So that's a feeling of compassion that we have through what you can call that empathy again that I was talking about before in the, the emotional sense. You feel bad for this boy who is suffering. It makes you feel something. And then to resolve that bad feeling within yourself you want to take care of them. And then now when the boy is okay, that bad feeling within you goes away. So you kind of balance your own homeostasis, so to speak. But now if I tell you, okay, it's actually not just one boy. There's 100,000 children outside of your door. What are you going to do? Now, sometimes we might think logically, well, I'd bring a few of them in or I'd do something. But very often we get to this tough space. I'm having this bad feeling because these kids are, there's these people that are suffering, these kids that are suffering. So I have one of two choices, and actually this is something that uh, he talks about in the book and how we resolve certain issues, is either I can change, take an action to fix the situations in a way. So right, if, with that one kid, I, can, I could do that. But now that I can't feed 100,000 children myself, the other thing we can do is somehow explain it away. So change our, you know, he talks about things like predictions, but change the way we're looking at the situation, which is what we do. We say, oh, you know, maybe, you know, things are just unfair in life or, you know, someone else maybe will do something about it. Or, you know, maybe these kids, they did something to get in this situation. We find a way to try to explain away the feeling, if we can, to no longer feel bad because what's the resolution? I feel bad and I can't, solve the problem that's making me feel bad. So maybe I have to try to think it's not a problem in some way, uh, you know, through these kinds of mental gymnastics. And if I can do that, then I won't feel bad anymore. So that's another way of uh, kind of maybe a sad way that we might get back to homeostasis is by thinking the suffering of other people somehow is okay. And this also relates to another psychological concept of the need for a just world that maybe this is fair in some way that I don't understand, or again, life is unfair, or people go through tests. And we do all sorts of things to minimize the significance of other people's suffering because it doesn't make us feel good. And again, when we we don't feel good, and that's how compassion can be understood in a way, is that you see someone else's suffering, it doesn't feel good. You want to resolve that suffering, and then you feel good when that suffering is resolved. But when you see that it's too big of a problem, unfortunately, our tendency is to try to explain it away. And I would hope, again, this is where it's not just listen to your feelings and whatever feels good, that we can still sit with that discomfort that, you know what? I can't help all of them, and I won't lose this feeling completely, but let me do something rather than nothing. Because again, it can seem, uh, I know I was talking about illogical, but it could be hard to make sense of if we want to help one kid, and that's something really bad, how could 100,000 kids not be important anymore? And that's why, uh, you know, sometimes one one tragedy is, uh, one person suffering is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. I actually think the author of that quote might be someone I wouldn't want to quote, but nonetheless, I'm not sure actually, don't quote me on that quote. But this mindset is that when it's too many people suffering, let's not care. And we have to challenge that and we can to recognize, you know what, 
anyone who's suffering is not okay. I can sit with this discomfort. I won't be able to get back to homeostasis, but I won't lose sight of this problem. I would want to continue more, but I realize I'm actually out of time for the show. Um, but again, highly recommend the book, The Hidden Spring by Mark Solm. So grateful to have read it. Big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. Have a wonderful night. 